What's up, everybody? Hello again. Well, um, if you just walked in uh, during the worship set, uh, we are obviously gathering in a slightly different way than normal around tables. And that's intentional because during this series, we wanted the focus to be on not just what's happening up here, but what's happening amongst us. Uh, and so... Um, And so we're going to get into this passage together. But before we do, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you're good and kind and faithful. Lord, there's nothing that any one of us, especially me, could say um, that if if you're not speaking through it, that if you're not guiding and directing, if those words aren't submitted to you and to your word, then it's got nothing. So Lord, would you guide and direct me, us, in this time and in this space. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when we gathered last week, we looked at the mission of Jesus to his disciples. You might be familiar with it. Uh, To go uh, to the various people groups of the world, um, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And this was an initial mission to uh, his closest followers, in particular his 12, his apprentices. Uh, the, but not just these 12, it was also to go to all those who had come after him. But then when they were finally sent out to do it, they needed to figure out how. I mean, imagine it for three and a half years, you're following after your rabbi and he's teaching you and, uh, and you're not only being taught the right things to know, but also how to act and how to behave and what to think and where to go and, and how to act when you get there. And then all of a sudden you get this epic mission and he ascends into the, into the heavens and then you got to figure out how. How are we to go to all the nations? How are we to go and make disciples of them? How are we to go and proclaim this beautiful truth and this continual truth that they are supposed to live in, not just as a one-time reality, but to teach them to obey all that I have commanded? And so you can think of some strategies that, uh, that you might think of if you're like, okay, um, we're not like the brightest tools in the shed, but we got to do something and this mission's pretty epic. Um, in fact, the us, these 12, our job is to now go from this impoverished, oppressed people group to take the word of a dead itinerant rabbi who apparently other people are going to know that we claim that he's alive, but not all of them have witnessed that reality. And actually there's some PR campaigns that are going to go against that fact. And then we're going to go to all the people groups of the known and unknown world. Wouldn't you be thinking, how do we do this? Like he, he's picking the wrong people for this, right? Um, so perhaps you start thinking of some approaches. You're like, maybe, maybe the manipulative, quick conversion strategy might work, right? Like that might be an effective tool. Maybe there's some type of money back guarantee that we can offer with a life of ease and luxury that happens with Jesus. That's it, right? Like these are the things that'll work. All right, okay. So the Pharisees, they took this legalistic approach to the rules of the Torah. So maybe here's what we could do. Here's an option. Let's throw all of those commandments right out the window. Maybe that's what we could do. 
Okay. If those don't work, there's always guilt trips, peer pressure, strong-armed culture war, politics, those, like all those things. We could try any of them. Now for 2,000 years, the people who represent Jesus have tried every single one of those at a different point or another. But here's two things that have proven true with each of those strategies and some more not so helpful strategies. One, they don't work out very well long-term. You could try to strong arm people into praying a prayer or uh, as in, um, or I was thinking about Nacho Libre. Uh, uh, and Nacho, uh, he ha- um, he's baptizing Escalito. And uh, the way he baptizes him, he's like, he's like, why have you been baptized? I don't know why. Like, uh, well, I believe in science. And then like, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you haven't watched it, you're welcome. Go check it out. Okay. But. Like, all right, that's one way to attempt to fulfill the Great Commission, right? The Nacho Libre approach. But they don't work very well long term. Um, They don't work very well long term. At some point, people will call you on the money back guarantee option. People will see that Jesus doesn't make all their lives shiny and new and with all the fun stuff and with the instant healings and all that stuff. Um, Guild trips at some point turn into uh, I'm done with you all or deep hurt and wounds. Peer pressure only can carry you so far. In other words, these strategies don't work well long-term. But here's the more important thing. They don't reflect the values of Jesus. They don't reflect the values of Jesus because if, if we only believe that Jesus is Savior, if we only believe that Jesus is Savior, then the goal should be to get people to pray a prayer to say that, that he is their Savior by any means necessary. The Nacho Libre approach. But when we see Jesus not only as Savior in a very narrow sense, but he is savior in the sense that he is the true healer who doesn't just heal in some one-time moment exclusively. He is, he was a teacher. He is the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords. He is, in other words, everything. And as a teacher, as a rabbi to his apprentices, he never attended that his apprentices would somehow cherry pick his teachings into a version that was more comfortable for them. He didn't, they wouldn't look at his actions and go, hmm, I'm going to go with the ones I like. The whole, like, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm kind of more of an aggressive person. So I like my Jesus flipping tables. But Jesus said, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. All, which means Jesus doesn't give an option for his apprentices to cherry pick from his teachings all. And not just to believe intellectually all of his commandments, but to obey, to listen to the point of action, all of his commandments. But see, it went deeper than simply practice what you preach. It boils down to the level of identity. Jesus had always been more interested in forming the hearts and minds of his apprentices in their newest, in their newest and truest identity than simply looking for them to just be better. He wanted to shape them from the inside out. And that starts at the core with our values. 
Now, at this point, I think it's important to clarify the difference between the realities that we value and the values that rest at the very core of our being. Now, values in general, just that word values, it can mean a few different things, uh, but values in a general sense are realities that can oftentimes fluctuate over time and often, and often involve either priorities, uh, like I value sleep, I value travel, financial security, or attitudes. Uh, I value um, keeping everything in, uh, in, in very clear spaces of where they're supposed to go. I value being on time. In fact, being early is on time. That's not actually me, but I have a person that's my wife who uh, does exactly that, and I, I don't. But she values that. Maybe one day she'll value it less, or maybe one day I'll value it more. We're going to see how that plays out in the future. But it's important important to understand, though, that when we're talking about the beliefs that are at the core of our being, these are not quickly movable realities. These are fundamental beliefs that guide ourselves and guide our people. Now, when you think of core values, what I want you to envision is think of the simple phrase, who we are who we are. These are anchor points to our true identity that we learn to live in more and more over the course of our lives. They are our true north that points us to what is right and good and true. Now, as a church, our call is to be a place of formation, being formed ever into our truest identity in the image of Christ. The question is, for each and every one of us, though, on a daily reality is, what identity are we being formed into? One reflecting Jesus or one reflecting, say, anything else? Now, last week we talked about our vision. Um, and it is possible to go after even a beautiful vision, to be a space where we are equipped, to be a space where we are sharing the gospel, to be a community who is multiplying gospel outposts, Throughout, uh, throughout our local and global realities, that we are a community that cares for one another and for the most vulnerable amongst us, both locally and globally. We can do all of those things in a sense, divorced from our identity in Christ, reflecting ourselves rather than Jesus. So we could even do all the right things and be saying, and I get the attention. We can do all the right things and in our mind, we're like, I hope somebody saw that. We can do all the right things from the outside's perspective, but God isn't looking just at our actions. He's looking deeper within. And what Jesus says is, apart from me, you will bear no fruit. So the question that the leaders of this particular local church began, has been exploring for the last couple of years, specifically towards the end of last year, was what core values rest at the heart of Jesus and inform us of our truest identity. So tonight we're going to explore our first triad of values. And what we're going to do is we're going to pause a few times throughout the message with a couple questions to prompt conversation around your tables uh, so that you can learn and we can learn from one another uh, and one another's experiences and perspectives. Uh, when we get there, don't feel any obligation to answer. Don't feel like just because it's your first time here that you don't have an opportunity to answer. We want this to be a, a safe space for you to be able to experience and learn from one another. 
Now, our first value that we're going to talk about, it's simple. It might even sound um, obvious, but it is much deeper than you or I could possibly fathom. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. The last night of Jesus' life, he was instructing his followers on what it meant to truly follow him. And this is in Matthew. Uh, Feel free to open your Bibles there if you want to. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. And in this In this, Jesus is foretelling his death and his, res- and his resurrection. And, and then Peter, uh, who I identify with most as far as disciples, I'm like, not because I'm awesome, but because he's so not awesome that that's why I feel comfortable with Peter. And, uh, and, and he rebukes Jesus, and that doesn't go very well for him. He gets called Satan. Uh, and, then, uh, and then Jesus tells him, tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if you want to be one of my followers, if you want to be an apprentice of mine, if you want to come after me, here's what it looks like. Always take the easy road. Okay, that's what I get for not reading from my Bible. All right, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Wait, that's tricky stuff, right? I grew up in a local church and from an early age, I always considered myself to be a Christian. But if you would have looked at my life from being a little munchkin all the way through, you'd have seen a young man who did things his own way with his own rules. I wasn't obeying all of Jesus' commandments. I wasn't even trying to. I wasn't even looking to. And so I partied and I played the role of uh, what I've heard it said before as a practical atheist. I um, would have said I believed in God, but lived as if he didn't exist. And so I was manipulative and I was performance driven. Honestly, if you guys would have known me, I don't know how much any of you would have liked me. So I'm glad you know me now. Maybe you like me a little bit better. And then I ran across this passage. And I don't know if I had read it before. Probably I had. Probably I was zoning out. Um, but I couldn't shake it. I was 18, almost 19 years old. And I, I had lived in this thought process that had become super common ever since, through reading, ever since World War II. So after the last World War occurred, and during the Cold War, American Christianity began um, hyper-focusing on conversion more and more. The goal was to have as many people pray a prayer as possible. And that was uh, what you would do. Now, that's not an unimportant reality. It's very important. But in that, it allowed something quite unintended to take place. A version of a two-tiered Christianity. There were the saved and then there were the followers. In this mindset, the saved are those who pray a prayer one time and have now received some type of holy fire insurance so that them and Jesus are kind of on cool, cool terms now. But see, the followers and the followers, if you want to be a follower, well, they're the ones who are sold out to Jesus. In fact, maybe, maybe they're taking this Jesus thing just too seriously. Now, Jesus definitely desires to seek and save the lost, right? That's biblical. 
but not just so that you don't go to the bad place, but instead you get to go to the good place. He seeks and saves the lost so that he can say, I have found you, now come and follow me. It's an invitation, not just for some, uh, just to cross over to the other side and turn and find yourself in heaven. It is an invitation to come and follow. See, Jesus doesn't seem very interested in the gospels with mere converts. He's interested in apprentices. Apprentices spend their days gleaning from their teacher how to do the job. Jesus said, you want to be my apprentice? Here's what it looks like. Pick up your instrument of death and follow after me. Don't misread when Jesus says, pick up your cross. It's like, oh, I should go buy a nice little necklace or something that reminds me that I'm a Christian. Like, no, no, no. Crosses weren't cute. Crosses were the ultimate humiliation device left for the worst of the worst of the worst political prisoners in their execution. The ones that you want to make an absolute example of. And so Jesus isn't dead yet. And he is saying, pick up your cross. And they're like, you first. And he's like, I will, you know? (laughs) Pick up your death, your death. Pick up the death of your selfhood, your death of your rightness, your death, the death of everything in you that is broken and decayed. Allow it to die and follow me. In other words, surrender to me. I've got you. Now, when I was 18, God used this passage to begin to open my eyes. And I realized for the first time that he didn't just want me to pray a prayer again. Because I had prayed that prayer every time there was an opportunity, just in case the last time didn't take. But in that moment, my prayer got very real. I realized Jesus wanted all of me. He wanted my desires, my career. Guys, I wanted, the last thing I wanted on planet earth was to be a pastor. (laughs) My hope and my trust. Now, this this is not the way that many of us grow up understanding Christianity, perhaps. Maybe you're like me and you you understood that two-tierness of what it meant to be a Christian. And so I was curious and I was hoping you guys would take a moment to discuss this around your tables with the first question. Uh, Do you think it matters if a person claims to believe in Jesus versus following him? Why or why not? And don't be distracted. Well, Danny just gave an answer. So obviously I have to like parrot that stuff. No, like don't do that. Like be real with one another, wherever you're at. Again, don't feel like you have to talk. But if you do, you will be heard. Um, And uh, before you do that, I would love to invite you guys just to take a moment to introduce yourselves to one another at the table, um, uh, just to learn one another's names as you go into this conversation. We're going to put five minutes up on the clock, and I'll be back up in five. Y'all, I hope you had a great conversation at your table and that you aren't too mad at me for breaking up that conversation right now, but relax. We can hang out after the gathering too and continue and go, hey, can we put up question one again? I got to keep going on that. You're welcome to do that. All right. Um, We follow Jesus. And my table uh, had a great response that like, like we're all a jumbled mess in this. And like, yes, exactly. We follow Jesus. It is both a statement of fact and it is also aspirational, right? 
I follow Jesus closer now than I did 10 years ago. And yet in 10 more years, hopefully my walk with him looks even more beautiful than it is now. In fact, I'm kind of betting on it. (laughs) So here's what we mean by we follow Jesus. It's in tiny print up there. So you can look this up online at thisismosaic.org slash we if you want to read all of this with us. But here's what it says. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy of our absolute devotion and his invitation into that devotion is to lay down the heavy burden of religion and rest in a daily abiding relationship with our Savior. Life with Jesus is not a performance to live up to. It is a surrendered, surrendered relationship to live into. Embedded in the very words of Jesus is a promise, I will be with you. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he has now given us his spirit as a seal of that promise. Some of the ways we experience the witness of our God are through rhythms and practices that followers have implemented for centuries. Things like study and memorization of scripture, prayer, fasting, worship, community, silence, solitude, and many more. We are devoted disciples of Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't mean just trying harder. It doesn't mean be better tomorrow than you were today. So when we hear that, we are devoted disciples of Jesus. It's not meant to say that, all right, are you in or are you out? And if you're in, then you can never have an off day, an off week, an off season. Because reality is, We're all a jumbled mess and we all have a path that we are walking. But the question is, are we daily, weekly, seasonally, yearly desiring to truly draw near to him? This doesn't give us the the guidance by which we can judge other people. It gives us the guidance by which we can go, God, explore explore my heart by your spirit. Where am I in this? Where am I? Would you draw me near? It means drawing near to the one who has already drawn himself near to you. And not just in one-on-one time, but also when we get together as community. Which brings us to our next value. We are one. See, we were never meant to do life in isolation from the times way back when in Eden, where God said it was not good for uh, the man to be alone to us today where loneliness, feeling unknown, unseen, unwanted, and emotionally isolated, it seems to be running rampant. And so I was hoping that this would lead to another five-minute convo around your tables with this question. What are some realities in our world today that you see is it having led to feelings of isolation and separateness? So I'd love for you guys to discuss this around your table for five more minutes. So hopefully at your tables, you were kind of given that opportunity to hear, yeah, there is plenty of reasons why isolation and loneliness are so prevalent in our world. 
But see, for Jesus, the culture of his kingdom is meant to be vastly different. His people would be marked at their core with a different value and understanding that they are one. Jesus, before his execution, is hanging out with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's crying out and he prays that they, meaning his apprentices, his disciples, would all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus didn't just think that this idea of oneness was kind of like some kind of good idea. It's like, let's tack this one on. He said it was an absolutely essential component to understanding who God is. That is, I am in you, Father. Let them understand why this matters. That the world will know that we are his followers, that because we are like him, And so therefore, it's an essential component to his people. Now, what does it mean to be one? A phrase like that can go in a number of different ways. And so to the best of our understanding, here's what we could glean from the scriptures in our description for we are one. We have been reconciled to God. Therefore, also to one another. Scott, do you mind putting that slide up? We have been reconciled to God, therefore also to one another. We are not merely a collection of saved individuals. We are one people united by faith in Jesus. We are a new kind of community, a body of many members, a family of brothers and sisters, a temple of living stones. We don't just confess this in our doctrine. We live it out in our culture. Who we are in Christ transcends all other differences and breaks down walls of division and hostility. We live out our unity by loving one another tangibly, forgiving one another quickly, forbearing one another patiently, and serving one another selflessly. Jesus would would also say, Another time that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. In other words, if we are doing epic stuff for Jesus, but we are not living as one, then we are wasting our time. We are one. Oneness is the core of who we are. And not because it's supposed to be easy, but because it's supposed to be worth it. To live in right relationships within community is worth every bit of effort we put into making it a reality. To own the ways that we have hurt others, to listen well, to confront with grace and truth, to go out of our way to serve one another. And we go out of our way to outdo one another in expressing honor. These weren't just realities that uh, were somehow easier in the ancient context than it is today. Like, well, they didn't have social media, so they didn't know how hard this stuff would get. True, they didn't have social media, but their reality had its own types of difficulties. And this concept of oneness wouldn't become one of the most prevalent topics of discussion throughout the entire rest of the scriptures if it was always just gonna happen naturally. Instead, 
there's well over a hundred one another statements in the scriptures. Because the authors knew that one another is not always an easy thing to live in. But imagine what the world would see if they looked into the community of those who follow Jesus and saw true oneness. And not oneness in some weird cultish way, uh, but like a oneness and like a true care, a true compassion. Not excluding others, but saying, yeah, yeah, we are meeting up as a family. Also, did you know that you're invited to be a part of this family? It's crazy. We are one. And this oneness is only possible because of what Jesus has already done for us, which brings us to our final value that we're going to unpack this evening. We are gospel-centered. We are gospel-centered. Now, our world is a mixed bag of news, right? You start scrolling on social media and you are met with uh, great news, like a little cat that was saved. Uh, and also uh, a lot of hard news. Uh, and you can just pick your topic at this point. Um, but now, now imagine though that you are a first century Jewish person. And it seems that just about all the news that you received is bad news. You receive news of higher taxes. You get no hope for a just government. Religious leaders seem to be more self-interested in their own desires and aspirations than actually caring for God's agenda. Okay, that's bad news land, right? And then you hear of a teacher, a teacher who's coming around with this insane news that you might want to dismiss because it almost sounds too good to be true. In Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and he said, and this is the gospel according to Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent is to turn away from, but it's not just the turning away from, it's in the direction that you are turning toward. It is to do a 180, but then to go home, to go back to where there is safety and life and light and freedom, to return home. So return home because the kingdom, it's on its way a new kingdom culture began breaking through in that moment. And then just, it didn't just do it the way that anyone would have expected. I mean, you might've expected that the, as a Jewish person in the, in the early centuries to believe that the kingdom would come one day by overthrowing Roman oppressors. And there would be this triumphant celebration as they got marched out of Jerusalem. But instead, Jesus' coronation happens at the cross allowing creature to torture creator, taking the debt of humanity's sinfulness on himself. And finally, the path home is available. Returning home is possible because a bridge has been built on the back of the architect of the cosmos. See, this is how the kingdom would come near. Odd, right? Not what you would have expected but this would radically alter the way that his apprentices would understand their place in the world and their identity at their core, which is why Paul would later write to the church in Galatia in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified together with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, the Messiah who lives within me. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I love this part. Don't miss this part. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul saw his entire life is open to the work of the gospel because his life was no longer his own. It was, it was enveloped in the life of Christ. Now, I've had uh, friends who have told me before that, uh, that Jesus is a crutch for the weak. And, and I would respectfully uh, argue that they were underselling the situation because Jesus isn't a crutch. He's life support for dead and weary bones. For those of us who follow Jesus, the life we now live is a life that is fully and wholly resurrected by his incredible requirement. No, by his incredible love for us. And this changes everything. Which is why when we wrote this description for we are gospel-centered, here's what we mean by that. We center our lives individually and together on the truth of this good news. Jesus, our King and Savior, was sent by the Father to live the life we could never live, die the death we deserve to die, and rise again to conquer death, darkness, and bondage. And now we, by spirit-empowered faith, have light, life, and freedom. The gospel of the kingdom has come, and it's coming to make all things new. We see all of life is orbiting around this reality, whether in marriage or singleness, career or homemaking, parenting or being parented, healthy or sick, poverty or prosperity, whatever our circumstances, the gospel pervades all. It is not simply a part of our lives. The gospel is our life. This is the core of who we are as a community. We are not after a culture of people who just do better who pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which I hear is difficult. <laughs> or a community of people who are just looking to come in and get their, uh, their spiritual fix for the week. We are a community of apprentices whose lives are radically transformed and will be continually radically transformed by the good news of Jesus. We aren't perfect people. And because we're not perfect people, this will never be a perfect church. But by God's grace, we are being perfected day by day. Now, if you feel disqualified, unworthy, or rejected, know that was true about literally every single one of us. We were dead. And now we are called to life. We were in bondage and now we are free. We were so blind in our sin and now we're given sight. See, when you come to know Jesus, here's a kind of a play-by-play -play of how this reality plays out. Jesus breathes into new life into your lungs and then says, get up and come follow me. And he says, by the way, there are other apprentices who are gonna be following me alongside you. And that means that you are theirs and they are yours, which means y'all are together. Y'all are stuck together. And together you will live lives centered on my good news so that you can demonstrate your passion for me and demonstrate my passion for the people around you every single day. So that in that you can discover what it means to love me, to love them and to serve the world.
This is the invitation of the gospel. And this is what this community, what a community of followers of Jesus is all about. So with that in mind, uh, we're, instead of asking a final question, we wanted to give time for a prayer request around your table. And so it can be whatever God's been laying on your heart and mind, whatever you're comfortable sharing in this context. Um, there's going to be other area opportunities for prayer if there's something a little bit more sensitive that you would love prayer on a little bit later. But feel free to share as much or as little as you want. And feel free to take up the opportunity to pray for somebody else if you would like to. Feel no obligation either way. But the biggest thing is we just want to offer an opportunity for you to see that we are the community that Jesus wraps around us, (laughs) around you. And so we're going to put 10 minutes on the clock right now. And I'd love for you guys to just take that time and just give it a moment to pray for one another. Can I agree with you all in prayer? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, in this space tonight, we have the opportunity to lift high the name of Jesus. I pray that as, uh, as your people got to speak to you together, that that would have just been a rich and beautiful time. Lord, we trust that those prayers uh, didn't go unheard, that you care and you know more than we could possibly understand. Lord, I pray that we would experience your presence in community, that you would do uh, your beautiful miracles in this space. We need you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.